0: Good evening, everyone. Tonight's Bible passage is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 to 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be new... A new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or adulterers. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an adulterer or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you.
1: Well, good evening, let me add my welcome to Matt's. Um, it's great to be with you as we continue to work through uh, this letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, if you are new or visiting, my name's Rod, I'm one of the pastors here, and we come to what, as you've just heard, is a fairly confronting section of the Bible. So let me pray for us, uh, that God would uh, help us as we grapple with this text together. Let's pray. Now Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us we acknowledge uh, at times uh, is quite challenging for us in the material it covers, but indeed in the way uh, it applies to our lives. And so we pray that you might help us, uh, that your spirit might uh, convict us afresh as we hear this section, that you would help us to think hard together about how we might live in the light of it uh, for the sake of our brothers and sisters in the faith and for the sake of your holy church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me run a fictional conversation by you between two guys. You understand that the Bible is very clear on this, right, that it's wrong to leave your wife for another woman. Well, yeah, I I understand what you're saying, but I don't think you appreciate how hard our marriage has been I mean, I'm sure she would prefer to be married to somebody else. All she ever does is criticize me. It's been a long time since we were in love, if we ever were. And plus, this other woman is my soul partner. You know, I can't imagine that God means for us to, you know, miss out on this relationship just because our timing was off by a few years. Well, look, I'm really sorry that your marriage has been difficult. Still, you're professing to being a follower of Jesus, right? And Jesus would never leave his bride. Would you say you're following Jesus now that you're a Christian? Well, of course I'm a Christian. I mean, I don't follow him perfectly, do you? And you're always the one that's telling me about how we're saved by grace and not by works. But now I feel like you're being a little judgmental towards me. Wasn't it Jesus who said, he who has no sin should cast the first stone? Well, how would you move forward after such a conversation with a friend from church who is in an adulterous relationship and yet who claims to be a believer? Would that awkward conclusion uh, be the end of the matter? Or is there some follow-up steps that need to take place? Is that conversation going too far already in the sense, well, you know, that their sin is just a private matter between them and God and they need to work it out and it's none of your business? Or does this have an impact on the wider church? Is there a response that the church should have to such a situation? You see, as we come to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians tonight, we're considering a situation where there is a significant publicly known sin where the people involved are unrepentant. And we will see that the Apostle Paul has great concerns about this situation and he is instructing the church to act in a certain way. And I think the big question that is raised by this passage for us is why should sin in the church be addressed? Why should sin in the church be addressed? Because Paul has clear actions for the people to take, which indicate how serious he takes the scenario. But is it right? Why should we take action over sin? Why should sin in the church be addressed? Two answers to that question this evening. The first of them from verses 1 to 8 is this. Because we need to restore sinners and protect God's church, because we need to restore sinners and protect God's church. So notice again what is stated in verses 1 to 3. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Well, there's an abrupt change, isn't there, here in the letter. We've had four chapters talking about division and struggles with different leaders within the church. And now Paul goes to addressing some issues around sexuality, which will continue in the next couple of chapters as well. But notice in verse 1, Paul just jumps straight into this particular situation where a man was in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And the situation is described in the present tense. It's indicating this is an ongoing reality. Most probably the, father's, the man's father is still alive and the woman is his stepmother. And with the opening phrase, it is actually reported, Paul is making no effort to disguise that he is astonished by this situation. And he points out that this kind of sexual immorality is not even tolerated among the pagan Gentiles. Now remember, this is the city of Corinth. Their one claim to fame is a massive temple that's all about sexual immorality. People come around from the Roman Empire to this place for that very reason. It's not a place known for being prudish. And yet he's saying that even they would be shocked by such behaviour. Not only is it a flagrant sin and therefore a problem, but it's also the response of the church in verse 2, which is a big problem for Paul. You notice in verse 2 Paul uses uh, the word you and he uses it emphatically in the way the sentence constructed is really serving to express his shock also at the church's behavior because he's saying rather than mourning this publicly known sin which should be mortifying to you you're you're proud or the words are literally you're puffed up about this immorality they're endorsing it it's okay And Paul uses their response in the present tense, or the perfect tense actually, in relation to their pride, saying that is an ongoing thing as well. And so it's not just the sin, but it's their endorsement of the sin that is also bad. And so rather than grieving, they seem to be almost celebrating. And Paul is saying rather, you should have put this man out of your fellowship. And what he's doing here is echoing the language of Deuteronomy. In the Old Testament, um, Moses in the law would often, through God's instruction, be talking about they need to put the person outside the camp, expel the wicked person. And that's actually how our chapter finishes. In verse 13 of this chapter, you get this quote. This is directly from Deuteronomy 13, verse 5. It's a constant refrain in the law. And Paul applies it here. The church at Corinth should have removed the offender. And Paul makes it clear in verse 3 that it is a case in which he has already pronounced his own judgment from afar. He's physically absent. He's not in Corinth. He's in Ephesus. He's left Corinth to go and continue his church planting ministry in Ephesus. But Paul says he's spiritually present with them, as it were, And his purpose in declaring his verdict is to indicate what the church should immediately do. This is my decision. This is what you should be acting on right now. And so he launches into a couple of steps that the church should take immediately. So notice from verse 4 and 5, Paul outlines a disciplinary process that they should take action on. Verse 4, so when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Let's unpack this process. So firstly, an assembly must be held in verse 4. Whether that was just a regular gathering on a Sunday like this or whether it was a specially convened meeting, we don't know, but they were to come together as one. Uh, Elsewhere in the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that such matters should be established by two or three witnesses. Of course, that was a principle from the Old Testament that was repeated over and over. And presumably this occurred again in this setting. Although Paul doesn't note it here, uh, it was their common practice. But it is the case in this particular scenario that this is a public issue. In fact, it seems everyone acknowledges that this relationship is happening. Step one, but then a decision must be made. Step two, Uh, again, presumably on the verdict of the majority. In in 2 Corinthians, again, the second letter to this church, chapter 2, verse 6, he talks about a majority making a decision. So no doubt that was part of the discussion, whether they were in agreement as a church to make a decision. And then the decision that Paul says they should be making is the punishment of exclusion of this man from the spiritual community. So that's what is meant by this phrase, hand this man over to Satan. That's a bit of a confronting phrase. Um, But elsewhere in Paul's writing, he talks about uh, the world at large, outside of God's people being Satan's realm. Ephesians 2.2, for example, Satan is the ruler of this kingdom of the air. And so it's a sense of having been thrust outside of the church, he's being handed over to live in the world without the support of God's people. But notice that the intention of all this is positive. The consigning of the offender uh, outside of the church should be a matter of grief. It's not an ultimate condemnation of the person. Rather, the hope is that this person will be restored to their fellowship, And so this uh, church discipline of excommunication, if you like, is not about just removing a problem, but the hope is that in tasting the bitterness of life outside of the church, the offender will repent and turn back in salvation. So Paul speaks about being saved on the day of the Lord or the judgment day. The intent is that on the final day before God, this person will have turned back and be standing with them in heaven ultimately the desire of restoration. In 1930, uh, my great-grandfather traded in his 1919 Buick and bought a 1926 superior model Chevrolet. They don't make these anymore. Uh, When he bought it, it had a soft top. It featured wooden spokes on the wheels, 21-inch tyres, horsehair seats, a six-volt system so powerful, external band brakes on the back wheel, that's brakes on the outside of your wheel, so when it's wet they don't work, and a powerful four cylinders. Now my grandfather inherited this in 1960 and soon it became the property of my father because my grandfather had no interest in this car. But my father drove it around apparently for about five years up to the Blue Mountains and back and eventually stopped dro- driving it and the plan was that he would restore it properly properly but it ended up sitting in a shed at Reesby at the family company. And when the company was sold in the 1990s, it was still there. And so then it was transported to our property in Campbelltown. And thankfully, we lived on five acres or my mother would have been even less impressed. And then when they sold the house in 2006, this thing got carted for a third time and was taken up to my brother's farm outside of Maitland, where it now sits in the shed looking like that. The long-promised restoration, 56 years in the making, will it happen? I'm not sure. But what's the attraction of restoring something or even proposing to restore something? Well, it has to do with returning it to its former glory, doesn't it? At least making it functional again. Instead of a broken, damaged product, we want to see it return to its former status. And the same is true of people, isn't it? If a person, a believer, has sinned and they have broken fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ, it should be our desire to restore them. And it's God's consistent instruction in the New Testament to do so. So, for example, elsewhere in Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes this, "'Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, "'you who are spiritual should restore him gently.'" But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Notice how important gentleness is here, and it should be born out of a sense of our own weakness. It involves humility, knowing that we could be prone to the very same sin. Indeed, we could be prone to sin even in seeking to deal with somebody else's sinful situation. Jesus highlights that elsewhere, actually, how one pastoral concern of one believer for another can actually quickly degenerate into a very critical spirit. So Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. However, there is certainly a place for drawing the attention of a brother or sister to sin in their life. We are called to speak the truth in love. If our concern is for the person's salvation or their ongoing growth in godliness. Now, I think at this point, we might think, wow, this is a very heavy passage. Is this uh, suggesting that this will happen often? 1 Corinthians 5 is a last resort after other steps have taken place first. I've been pastoring in this church alone for 15 years and I think we've only ever had two conversations even about such a situation, let alone it actually happening. And so Jesus says in Matthew 18 verses 15 to 17 that there are several steps that should happen before you get to the last resort. He talks about meeting one-on-one so that there is a chance to talk through that with your brother or sister in Christ. Attempts at restoration should always begin that way privately. But let me say that we do need to commit ourselves to speaking the truth in love. It's hard. And we live in an age that is very tolerant now. It's almost ingrained in us, I think, today that we shouldn't correct other people. And so we avoid directly dealing with difficult situations. We just... Hope it will go away or that somebody else will say something. If that's where we stand as believers, we actually have to repent of that sort of attitude. God calls us to care and love for, show much more love for our brothers and sisters than that. We need to act out of love. We can't only be concerned for the individual sinner, though, either as important as that is, we also need, secondly, to be concerned about protecting God's church and its witness. So have a look at what Paul goes on to say in verses 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, Paul turns now to the welfare of the church at large, and he does so by appealing to the potent effects of just a tiny amount of leaven or yeast on a whole lump of dough. And his concern, obviously, as he uses this metaphor and thinks about the situation at Corinth, is that the sexual immorality that they're tolerating in their midst is going to infect the whole church. If people think that that's okay, that's going to send all the wrong signals to those inside and outside the church. And Paul's metaphor about the effects of a little leaven affecting the whole group leads him to speak about the festival of unleavened bread in verses 7 and 8. Of course, annually at the time of Passover, which happens at Easter, Jewish people would remove all the leaven from their house. It's still a thing today. There's actually a hunt where they'll go around the house, make sure it's all removed and put safely away in a locked cupboard. They want to eat only unleavened bread for the week of celebrating Passover. And though predominantly a Gentile church, the Corinthians would still have known at least about the Passover festival. It was the biggest festival. They would have understood the crucial background of the exodus from Egypt, that greatest salvation event in the Old Testament. But notice in verse 7 that although Paul is instructing them to get rid of the old yeast, that is, these attitudes and this wrong teaching that such sexual immorality is okay, he finishes verse 7 by saying, well, actually, they're already a new batch. They're already a new lump of dough. You see, in God's eyes, the Corinthian church is already a new creation through faith in the Lord Jesus. So now they need to start acting in accordance with their new identity in Christ And so they need to get rid of those former sins that dominated their lives prior to becoming believers and the attitudes and teaching that would tolerate and even approve of an incestuous relationship. And, of course, the basis of this new life that they now have, this new desire to live a new way, is because their sin has been dealt with once for all through Jesus, the Passover lamb. And so that's spoken about in verses 7 and 8. Through Christ they were sheltered. From the Father's wrath against sin, and so in verse eight, notice he's saying that the Corinthian church was to keep the festival. By that, he doesn't mean do the unleavened bread thing for a week like the Jews. He says no, keep it every day. They are actually to live lives that this festival is a an ongoing part of their lives. In the sense that they are to remove the leaven of malice and wickedness from their lives. They are to now be marked by sincerity and truth. This is a call from the Apostle Paul for the church to be holy, to protect God's church from blatant sin, so that they might be marked by something that stands apart from the society around them, so that God's name might be honoured. Well, As we apply this first point to ourselves, we have to grasp, firstly, the role of the assembly of God's people in protecting the church's ongoing health. Where there is significant, publicly known sin, where the people involved are unrepentant, the church must act. In our setting as a Baptist church, we do so through congregational government, which we see in operation in this passage. Did you notice verse 4? Paul tells them, to assemble, to come together and to make a collective decision about the removal of this person. And so we do so, not by just meeting on a Sunday, but we have four meetings a year, as we've just advertised our fourth one is coming up. But for those meetings to work effectively, for decisions to be made about all manner of things in the governance of our church – We need those who see WBC as their home, as their spiritual family, to actually commit to being part of that process. And so we call that membership. You become a formal member, and by that, it's a commitment to say, I'm going to take on this responsibility of being part of the decision-making for the body of believers. I'm so committed to these brothers and sisters around me that I want to be part of the process. I don't just come on a Sunday, but I want to commit myself to all the decisions that they make. It's a great thing to be part of. And in doing so, as a member, you commit to sitting under the authority of the church body, but joining in also to contribute your wisdom to the decisions that are made. So I'd like to urge you tonight, if you're not a member, to consider becoming a member of our church, to express this principle of scripture as you commit to this particular local gathering for the time you're here. Look, if that's something you're interested in, uh, we've got forms about membership. You can see Mark after the service and talk through that. But think about that because this is what we're called to in the governing of the affairs of Christ church. And actually, as members in this church, we actually have a covenant. That's part of our church constitution. Each member is encouraged to make and honour this covenant. And from time to time, we actually reaffirm it. We plan to do so at our meeting coming up in November. This is just part of it, but it states in part with humility and gentleness, patience and love, we will be kind to one another, tender hearted, encouraging and facilitating any necessary reconciliation, forgiving each other, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. We will carry each other's burdens, praying for each other. We will not neglect to gather together, but will support and treasure the biblical preaching of the whole counsel of God, praying together, the faithful observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper and the loving exercise of church discipline. If that's the kind of thing that you feel that you can commit to, it's an expression of being part of a local body like WBC, we'd love to speak with you about that. And that brings me to a second answer to our question tonight, a shorter answer. (laughs) Second answer to our question of why should the church deal with sin? Why should sin in the church be addressed? Secondly, because those in the church must be held accountable. Those in the church must be accountable. So notice again what Paul says from verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people." Well, in verse 9, we see that this is not the first occasion that Paul has written to them on the topic of sexual immorality. In an earlier letter, uh, which has been lost to us, which we no longer have, he called them not to mix with sexually immoral people, those who are consistently so. Now, at least some of them in the church have mistakenly taken Paul to mean that that meant they had to withdraw from all non-Christian contacts, perhaps withdraw from Corinthian society altogether. And so Paul now corrects this misunderstanding, stating that, no, he was referring to those who claim to be believers, who are amongst the church, but who are consistently sexually immoral. And now he adds further categories, did you notice? Extortioners, robbers, idolaters. Notice in the case of all these sins, they're all significant, outwardly observable sins that would damage the church's health and its witness. These are not secret sins done in private or wrong attitudes that no one would be aware of. They're unambiguous breaches of God's commands. And so Paul says, in such situations, believers are to separate themselves from anyone who is claiming to be a believer but who is openly sinning in these ways. And then in verse 11, he adds two more categories slanderers and drunkards. In fact, he says, they are not to even eat with them. Now, that is the telling statement in this section. Most commentators agree that Paul not only has daily meals in people's homes in mind, but also the Lord's Supper. All acts of eating, you see, particularly in the ancient world, were considered sacred since the blessing of God in prayer and thanksgiving is offered beforehand. And so table fellowship signals approval or endorsement of the people you're having a meal with. And this is particularly the case, of course, with the Lord's Supper, which we will share together a bit later. Let me ask the question, how can believers have fellowship with God in prayer and communion in the presence of someone claiming to be a believer but flagrantly living in open sin? If you have someone whose life is openly mocking their claim to believe, participating in the Lord's Supper, then that is a great offence to those sitting around them, if everybody is aware of that. And more than that, it is completely unloving to the sinner because we're not holding them to account. That is not loving. By remaining a part of the church with no one saying anything we leave that person to believe that they have no obligation to repent, that what they are doing is okay, and the fact that they are eating this meal that is so precious with other believers means that they all approve of what they're doing. And so Paul says in verse 12 and 13 to finish our section, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. So it's God's role to judge those outside. What Paul's referring to is the final day of judgment. God will judge all people at that day, those within and without the church. But he's saying it's not our job to run around and worry about those who don't know God and to pass judgment on them. We don't need to sit on God's throne. He will do the judging on the final day. But before that day, believers are a responsibility for each other. Our brothers and sisters in Christ or those who claim to be should be our concern and responsibility. Where someone who we know is acting in a way contrary to what the Bible teaches and is unrepentant, we need to speak into their life. And that's not a matter of being judgmental. We don't do so to sort of condemn them. Merely we are wanting to express God's love for them. We are seeking to restore them, as I've mentioned earlier, to hold them accountable to God's word. If we fail to do that, then we show no welfare or concern of the welfare of Christ's church and its witness to God's love and holiness, and we show no real commitment to our brother or sister And yet, as Paul says this ending, I don't know if it struck you, but it struck me as I've reflected on this this week, that so often today, I think we act in the reverse. We're quick to point the finger at people outside the church, particularly secular leaders. And then we turn a blind eye to fellow believers who are causing the gospel to be maligned and God's name to be dishonoured. Think about it. On the one hand, we're wrongly trying to hold non-Christians to account who don't know God, who don't accept the Bible's teaching, who don't have the Holy Spirit to convict them. While on the other hand, if we do act in that way to those outside the church, we potentially alienate them further, don't we, by making it hard for them to hear the gospel because all they hear are our criticisms around moral issues. Meanwhile, we don't speak the truth in love to fellow believers so often, potentially allowing them to drift from their Christian commitment. Notice there should be an evangelistic edge to both groups, how we interact. We want to spur fellow believers on to seriously live for Jesus every day. But we want to be so gracious to unbelievers so that we might win a hearing for the good news that they so desperately need to grasp. I've been reminded strongly of this reality in the last 12 or 15 months as we've run Christianity Explored courses, actually, because I've had guys in my groups uh, sitting in my lounge room that have had addiction issues, who have had history of violence, who have had lifestyles were clearly contrary to Christ's teaching. But if they are not believers, they're not going to feel convicted about their choices, and I don't need to speak into those issues in the first instance. I need to explain to them God's love and grace shown towards them in Jesus, of how they can receive God's forgiveness and enjoy His salvation. And you know, if they become a Christian and God grants them His Spirit the Holy Spirit will immediately begin that work of reforming their lives and they'll suddenly see things that I won't even have to say to them. And as they join the church and are surrounded by brothers and sisters who are going to walk with them through life and encourage them to keep in step with the Spirit, then they will continue to be strengthened and taught and held accountable by God's people. In contrast, those of us who are already committed believers and perhaps have been so for a long time, we need strong brothers and sisters in Christ who actually speak into our life regularly. As Proverbs says, we can trust the wounds of a friend. We need people that are close enough to us to be known well enough by those around us so that they can ask the hard questions of us not to condemn us, but to spur us on in our faith, to encourage us, to make us what we're called to be in Christ. And we do that for each other, to speak the truth in love, to see where we have erred that we might be restored and brought back so that we might grow in our relationship with Christ and that we might see his church, his bride, which is so precious to him, strengthened day by day, week by week. This is the call of God's people. This is the challenge of this section of Scripture. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've granted us your word. And at times it it really does confront us with our responsibility as your people. Lord, we thank you for your church. May we value it as much as you do. May we care for each individual within it, that we might spur them on as brothers and sisters. Lord, help us not to be so lacking in courage or love that we say nothing, that we remain silent where we see struggles in the life of our fellow believers. Lord, help us to speak with gentleness and love but help us to act for your glory and for the sake of our brothers and believers. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.